Good morning. Turn your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3. And as you're turning there, let me say what a joy it is to be here. As I look out, I see many faces I've known, people I've known over the years. And it's a real privilege to be here. It's a privilege to be here at the installation of Tim Pitzer. Uh, Tim and I go back about a dozen years, and his wife and her family, we go back uh, about 24, 25 years. And as David mentioned, we go back about 30 years when we were in K-4. A little bit longer than that. You can add about 30 more to that. But uh, I remember we were good buds in K-4 at Trinity Methodist Church in Greenville. And then we parted ways. Our families moved. And then we came back together in high school. And I always wanted to be able to play the guitar and sing like David Roundtree. So it's uh, really good to be here and to be with you as God's people. Zechariah chapter 3. And beginning in verse 1, hear now the word of God. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, Then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you, your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that was set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbors coming under his vine and under his fig tree. Here is the reading of the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that by your word and by your spirit, you would indeed impress upon our hearts the beauty and the glory and the wonder of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that the message that continues to flow forth from this church through all its ministries might be one that gives hope to its people and honor to our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. On February the 9th, 1709, little Jackie was awakened by the smell of smoke and the flash of fire as his house had become engulfed in a blazing fire. In the confusion of all of it, his mother and father and seven siblings had been safely escorted out of the home, but they had forgotten little Jackie. And out on the front lawn as the house was burning, the father remembered that he was still inside and he tried to get back in, but the house was too engulfed in flames. He was unable to do so. And there with tear-filled eyes, he dropped to his knees on the front lawn and he committed his little boy to the Lord. However, some neighbors had spotted little Jackie in a window. They formed a human ladder, and they saved the little boy. It was 41 years later, February the 9th, 
1750, after this, 41 years after this event, now in his mid-40s, this man wrote in his journal after late-night worship at London Street Chapel. About 11 o'clock it came into my mind that this was the very day and hour on which I was taken out of the flames. I stopped and gave a short account of the wonderful providence. And the voice of praise and thanksgiving went up upon high, and great was our rejoicing in the Lord. And 41 years after that remembrance, when this man, now in his later 80s, Jackie, better known as John, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, wrote his own epitaph, and he wrote this. Here lies the body of John Wesley, a brand plucked from the burning. No doubt Joshua, the high priest, had a similar thanksgiving unto God as he was described in the same way in verse 2. The people in Zechariah's day had returned from captivity to Jerusalem. They were rebuilding the city, reestablishing the temple. But once the temple was rebuilt, the question was, who then would lead in these sacred duties? Scripture tells us it was the great high priest who was called upon to offer these sacrifices and take charge of these all-important tasks. And so in, John, in, in Zechariah's fourth now vision in his book, Right on cue, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, stands in that holy court above. And he begins to accuse Joshua, the great high priest, and challenge his qualifications. And Satan's accusations were true. They weren't fabricated. Joshua brought no defense. And here he stands before the throne, completely unqualified. Tim, you know, as pastors, we feel this daily, our, our lack of qualification, our lack of ability, our inadequacy, and it causes us, by God's grace, to run to his throne of grace, we pray. But here is Joshua now, feeling all the inadequacies. What do we learn from this heavenly scene? What is it that the Holy Spirit has intended for us in the recording of this fourth vision from Zechariah? If the high priest couldn't pass the vetting process, then what hope do I have? What hope do any of us have of standing one day before the throne of God above? Well, in this fourth vision, one of the things that we see is that our sin is much more pervasive and much more heinous than we could ever begin to imagine. You know, we tend to try to sanitize our sin. In this day of post-COVID, we remember hand sanitizers everywhere and masks everywhere and being fearful of catching any kind of germ. And sometimes we can take that approach to the Scriptures. We, we pull out our spiritual Lysol, if we will, and we spray over passages that deal with the heinousness of our sin. Well, how bad is it? Here is our best representative standing before God, dressed in his high priestly attire, and Satan standing there with his accusatory smirk on his face saying, what's that I see on Joshua's clothing? What is that I, I smell? And Satan is describing something that is heinous, that is offensive before God. What is it? Look at verse 3. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes. 
The Hebrew word for filthy there is a word that's offensive. It's a word that's revolting. It's a word that's often used to describe human waste. And God gives us this picture so that we would begin to come to grips with the heinousness, the the grossness, if you will, the offensiveness of our sin before a holy, holy God. Here we are, covered, if you will, spiritually in human waste, smeared all over our religious facade. Do do passages like that offend you? Does this offend you? Well, cheer up, it, it gets worse. You see, God not only describes our sin in such words, He describes our righteous deeds in such words. You remember from Isaiah chapter 64, all of our righteous acts are as what? As filthy rags. It's another word in the Hebrew that is equally offensive. Paul uses the word in the Greek, skabala. All of my righteous zeal, all of my righteous acts before I came to know Jesus Christ were as rubbish, they were as dung. And if this is Satan's assessment of us, who only knows half the truth of our hearts, how much more a God who knows every thought and word and inclination of our hearts. Years ago, British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge was working on assignment in India. And one night he left his place of residence and he went down to a nearby river for a swim. And there he looked across and he saw a woman bathing. Up to that point, Malcolm Muggeridge had been faithful to his wife all those many years. But this time, he determined in his heart he was going to cross the line of marital fidelity. As the current of lust in his heart drew him close to this woman, as the the, the idea of adultery filled his mind with fantasies, he got right up to her. All of a sudden, he was shocked and he was appalled and devastated. He recounted this incident. She was old and hideous, and her skin was wrinkled, and worst of all, she was a leper. This creature grinned at me, showing a toothless mask. What a dirty, lecherous woman, he thought. And then it dawned on him. It was not the woman who was lecherous. It was his own That's why God gives us pictures like this to remind us of who we are at the core apart from the grace of God. Let me ask you this morning, have you seen and have we experienced the lecherous nature of our sinful hearts apart from Christ? Have we beheld our supposed robes of righteousness soiled in the waste of our sin? This is the picture that God is calling us to begin to understand that that's who we are apart from the grace of God and the gospel. And as Joshua is confronted vividly with his sin, at that moment there was nothing he could offer, nothing he could do, no defense whatsoever. There he stood, laid bare before the holy, holy eye of God. But just when you would expect... God to dismiss Joshua as unqualified and inadequate. He does something remarkable. Instead, he turns to his accuser and he rebukes Satan. 
And in so doing, God promises to remove our sin and to clothe us in robes of righteousness. As Satan thunders his condemnation, God's grace towards Joshua thunders even more loudly. Take off those filthy clothes, verse 4. It is a picture of the removal of his sin, for he goes on in that same verse, See, I have taken away your sin. All the filth, all the offensiveness, all the heinousness of Joshua's heart has been removed forever. But God not only in this scene removes his sin as far as the east is from the west, but he clothes him in righteousness, in a garment of grace. The verse continues, I will put rich garments on you. And then verse 5, I'm going to place a clean turban on your head. The high priestly turban had a golden plaque that read, Holy unto the Lord. Picture what's taking place here. The standing before the Lord of glory. And there is Satan standing there, pointing his bony finger, accusing Joshua the high priest. Joshua's standing there covered from head to toe in the filth of his own sin. Completely unworthy to stand before the Lord. Much less to represent the people of God before him. And yet in immeasurable mercy, in limitless love, in abounding grace, God does something marvelous for him. He removes Joshua's sinful, soiled clothes and robes him in a raiment of righteousness. So righteous now is he standing before the Lord that he is counted holy unto him and righteous in his sight. But what does that have to do with us? What does this fourth vision in the book of Zechariah that happened way, way, way back when, what does it have to do with us today? Look at verse 8. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men, what? As a, a sign or symbolic of things to come. In other words, this whole scene in the heavenly courts it is symbolic of what the Lord is going to do in real life, in redemptive history. And what is it he promises to do? And through whom does he promise to accomplish all of this? Look at verse 8. I'm going to bring my servant the branch. Believers in Zechariah's day would have immediately said, that, that's code for Messiah, for the anointed one, for the Christ who is to come. My servant, the suffering servant from Isaiah chapter 53. Furthermore, both Isaiah and Jeremiah refer to the coming Messiah as the branch. Someone with a humble beginning, but who would grow and become strong and produce much fruit, worldwide fruit for the Father's glory. Verse 9 further describes this coming one as a stone with seven eyes. The seven eyes are probably a picture of the omniscience of God, the all-seeing nature of the living God. And this idea of the stone or cornerstone or capstone was reminding us that the work of Messiah will come and he would build the true temple of God, not of brick and mortar, but of the redeemed people of God. All of this is pointing to Messiah's significance. He would be the great high priest who would fulfill the promise, who would be worthy to stand before the Father, and who in a single day 
one decisive day would take away all of the sins of his people. You know, standing on this side of the cross, it's difficult to miss, isn't it? What's the point of this passage? What this picture of this man covered in filthy clothes, standing before the holy God, and Satan pointing his bony finger of accusation at him, what's it reminding us of? That there's one who will come in our midst. That all of this scene is reminding us that God has decisively dealt with our sin. Once and for all, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. All of these designations in Zechariah's fourth vision are pointing to him. The angel of the Lord, servant, branch, stone, all point to him. Even the name of Joshua the high priest, Hebrew Yeshua, Jesus, Yahweh, the Lord saves. And on this side of the cross we see that Jesus did precisely what was promised. And a single day when Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. The work of atonement, the work of forgiveness for the filth and refuse of our sin was accomplished in the finished work of our Savior in that single day. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus is building the holy temple of God. Not of brick and mortar, but of people like you and me who have been redeemed by the grace of God in the gospel. So what does this have to do with us? What does it have to do with you and me here this morning? Have you seen the filth of your sin? The heinousness of your sin? The offensiveness of your sin before a holy, holy God? But have you also seen the beauty and the glory and the wonder of Jesus Christ who offers full and free forgiveness. If we've not seen our sin, we will go on in self-deluded self-righteousness and never run to Him. But if the Holy Spirit of God through His Word is beginning to convict us of our sin or has done so, we will, with Augustus' top lady, run to Christ and we will sing things like foul, foul, to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Let me ask you this morning, have you come to that place in your life where you've recognized your desperate need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ? Have you confessed your sin to him and embraced him by faith as he's freely offered in the gospel? This is our only hope that we have a mediator who will stand between us and a holy God and vouch for us through his finished work. If you've trusted Christ, I want you to see several applications and, and benefits, if you will, that flow from that union with Christ by faith. First, God in Christ has completely forgiven and removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. Again, verse 4, remove those filthy garments. They're gone. When I read this, I'm reminded of 1 John 1.8. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and do what? Cleanse us. Purify us from all unrighteousness. Again, Augustus' top lady in his hymn, A Debtor to Mercy Alone, penned these words. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. Why? 
My Savior's obedience and blood hide all of my transgressions from view. Second, if you're trusting in Christ, just as the angel of the Lord didn't simply remove Joshua's filthy clothes and leave him there standing in his birthday suit, but clothed him, so God does the same for us. He not only removes our sin, but he clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. Look again at verses 4 and 5. Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Let them be clean. Let a clean turban be on your head. Isaiah uses the same imagery of being clothed. He writes this in Isaiah chapter 61. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me with robes of righteousness. This is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Tim, it was this doctrine through the book of Romans that God brought you to faith in Christ. What is that doctrine? That not only has my sin been washed and forgiven and removed, but now our hope is in righteousness. God counts us in Christ as righteous only for the righteousness of Christ. This received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. J.C. Ryle brings some application to our own hearts when we begin to grasp, or rather when we are gripped by the doctrine of justification by faith. And he writes of that heavenly voice that was heard at Jesus' baptism. You remember that voice? The Father boomed from heaven. This is my Son, and with Him I am what? Well pleased. J.C. Ryle writes this about you if you're a believer in Christ. Believers may rejoice in the thought that though in themselves sinful, yet in God's sight you are counted as righteous. The Father regards them as members of His beloved Son and sees in them no spot, and for His Son's sake He is well pleased. Do you realize that? In the midst of our struggle with sin, do you realize even now our Father is well pleased for this reason? He's not looking at you. He's looking at His Son. And when the holy eye of God is cast upon you, He sees Him. That's the astounding thought. That at this moment, all the righteousness God requires of us, He has provided for us. How? By grace, through faith in His Son. And so at this moment, though we're struggling with our sin and wondering even, do we belong here? The holy eye of God looks upon you. And He sees you as holy and righteous and well-pleasing in His sight because of your union with His Son. Third, because of Christ, we should have increased confidence to face our accuser. How many times does Satan come and whisper in your ear, how in the world could you be a Christian and struggle with the things with which you struggle? How could you be counted as one of God's righteous ones? What's your response at those moments? What do you say when the tempter comes and says those things in your ear? John Bunyan, in his classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress, has a great scene in which Apollyon, who 
is representing this nasty, fire-breathing dragon representing Satan comes and he accuses Christian of a lack of faithfulness, of slothfulness in the Christian life, of his, of his sin. And he goes on and on and Christian responds to him and he, he says, where in Apollyon have I been unfaithful? To my Savior, and Apollyon responds with these accusations of your fear, your unfaithfulness, and he goes on and on. And Christian responds this way. All this is true, and much you have left out. But I have a prince whom I serve and honor, who is merciful and ready to forgive. John put it this way in his first letter. My dear children, I write these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So what is your defense? It's simply this. Christ died for me, and it is finished. John Newton, the godless former slave trader, penned this in one of his hymns. Be thou my vision and hiding place that sheltered near thy side. I may my fierce accuser face and tell him, thou hast died. That's your defense. Fourth, for those who come to faith in Christ, life cannot remain the same. It just can't. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge. There was now a charge upon Joshua's life in response to God's saving and transforming grace. What was that charge? And what is the charge to every believer in Christ? It's this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Motivated now, empowered now by the grace of God and the gospel, life cannot remain the same. In other words, the God who justifies is the God who sanctifies. His Holy Spirit taking residence in our hearts gives us a passion for purity and a hunger for holiness. Fifth, we now have bold access to God himself through Christ. Verse 7 continues, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Now, direct access to God was unthinkable to the saints of old. The last thing you wanted to do was have access to God. Do you remember people coming into his presence and dropping dead like that? But all of a sudden now, the judgment of God has been appeased and satisfied through the person of Christ. And as believers, we can boldly come into his presence. Hebrews reminds us in chapter 4, for we do not have a high priest, not Joshua, but the true Joshua, Jesus, we have now. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Therefore, what? Let us approach the throne, not of judgment any longer. It is still a throne of judgment for the believer in Christ. Let us approach the throne of grace in time of our need. And this same Savior who is seated at the right hand of the Father now ever lives to intercede for you in mercy and patience and kindness and long-suffering and grace, pleading the merit of his blood on our behalf. Six, flowing from our union with Christ, there should be a profound sense of gratitude, thanksgiving, 
and worship. Again, verse 2 that I began with in the introduction reminds us we are but what? We are but a brand plucked from the fires of hell itself. Robert Murray McShane, Scottish Presbyterian pastor, said, Chosen not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee, hidden in the Savior's side, by the Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. When the grace of God in the gospel truly begins to grip our hearts, it will cause us to have a sense of overflowing thanksgiving and gratitude and praise and of worship. And finally, one other application that flows from this union with Christ and the gospel of grace is found in verse 10. Such a great salvation will increasingly become really good news to the believer. And this is crucial for ministry to to a world that's lost and broken and hurting without hope in this world and without God. We have good news. We have great news that cannot be contained. Amazed by God's grace, sinners are now empowered who've come to faith in Christ by God's Spirit to speak often and well of Christ. And so we invite our neighbors. Look at verse 10. In that day, what day? The the day of redemption, the day in which God in Christ has taken away our sins in one decisive day. And that day declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The vine and fig tree are just a picture of God's covenant blessings that we now experience as a result of our union with faith in, in Christ Jesus. And we do so humbly. Because we know we are no better than the vilest offenders. That's who we were, saved by the grace of God and the gospel. And so our approach to unbelievers, no matter where they are on the spectrum, politically, morally, or whatever, must be a humble approach before them. Charles Spurgeon said evangelism is simply one beggar, that's me, showing another beggar where to find bread. And so if we truly believe we're but a brand plucked from the fire, if we truly believe our only righteousness is found in Christ and not in us, then we cannot look down in a condescending, self-righteous manner before anyone, period. Years ago, Matt Chandler tells a story of his freshman year in college. He said, I sat next to a 26-year-old single mother trying to get her degree. And we began to talk about the gospel and the cross of Christ and the mercy and the grace that is found in him. He said I and several other guys would would go over to her place and and babysit so she could continue to study or go to the library. And he said a friend of mine was was playing in a band one night. I think it was the Rob Castle's band. And uh, no, I I don't think it was. But there was a band years ago playing. And he said, I wanted this girl to come hear my friend sing. And she thought it was a concert. I knew better. It was, a, it was a Christian concert, and there was going to be a speaker afterwards. And he said, after the concert that was really good, this pastor got up, and he began to talk about sex. And Matt's sitting there thinking, oh, great. Here I am with Kim, this 26-year-old single mother next to me. And he says, he holds up a rose, and he says, do you see this rose? And he, and he smelled it, and he touched it, and he said, I, I want you to feel it and, and smell it. And, 
and, and uh, feel the texture. And he tossed it out in the, in the audience. So there were about a thousand people gathered there and said, feel it and pass it around. And then he began what Matt said was probably the worst rendering he had ever heard of what sex is and isn't. He said it was horrific. It was just a horrible handling of this gift of God. It was fear-mongering at best. And he said, I'm sitting here thinking with Kim next to me, what are you doing? And to wrap up his talk, the crescendo of his talk, he said, where's my rose? Where is it? It had been passed around at this time, and a kid brought it up and handed it to him. And the stem was broken. The petals were all tattered. It was wilty, wilted and, and worn. And the crescendo of his talk was this. He held up that broken rose and said, Who would want this? And Matt said, Anger began to swell up in his heart. Real, I want to hurt you, anger. He said, I wanted to holler out. Jesus wants the rose. That's the point of the gospel. Jesus wants the rose. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. That we who were God's enemies, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Oh, my friends, have you seen what Joshua saw here that day? Not only the filth and the heinousness of your sin, but the beauty and the glory and the wonder of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you seen the guilt and filth and shame of your sin? How utterly unworthy you are and how unworthy I am to stand before the throne of God. But have you also seen through the eye of faith that you are a brand plucked from the very fires of hell? That you were a once rejected, broken, tattered rose who is now dearly and deeply loved by the Father. If you don't believe it, look at the cross. That's the point of the gospel, such is the reality of those whose hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Tim, this is your message. I don't care how old they are or how young they are. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our only hope. It's our lifeline. It's the only way that we will ever stand before the throne of God above and hear the Father himself say of us who are in Christ with you. I'm well pleased because of him. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you grant us by your word and spirit a glimpse not only of our sin, but of our Savior, of his righteousness and holiness and justice, and also of his mercy and his grace and his long-suffering. And Father, with that look of faith, would you grant us a holy assurance that one day, as a child of God dearly loved, we will stand before the throne of God above in full confidence and join with the saints that have gone before us in eternal, uninterrupted, unhindered worship of Him who is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.